Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of History with Sai. Now, I know it's been a while since I've uh, specifically done a podcast, but that's because I've been recently focusing on making videos, which take a lot of time. But to be honest, I actually enjoy doing podcasts more because they allow me to be a bit more informal and I can get into more specific details that I normally wouldn't in a standard video, mostly due to time. In this podcast, I want to talk about someone who has appeared or at least been mentioned in several past episodes, and that's King Croesus of Lydia. He's also one of my favorite characters in Herodotus's monumental work, The Histories, and there's one story in particular that has stuck with me since I first read it years ago, which I'll also go over in this program. So without further ado, let's begin. So, who was Croesus, and why was he so famous in antiquity? Croesus was the king of a state in western Anatolia called Lydia. In those days, it was part of what the Greeks called Asia Minor, and today would consist of much of western Turkey. During his reign, from about 560 to 546 BC, he was believed by many to have been the richest man in the world. He was also the last independent king of Lydia, and lost his throne by choosing to go to war with Cyrus II, king of Anshan better known to us as Cyrus the Great of Persia. More on that in a few moments. There are many legends with regard to the life of Croesus, but sources for the historical king are relatively few, almost entirely in Greek, and were written several generations or more after his death. The most comprehensive of these is the 5th century BC account found in Herodotus's great work, The Histories. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Herodotus, and he's one of my favorite ancient authors, but I also know that he had a great tendency to exaggerate and not exactly fact-check his sources. Despite this, he's really the best source that we have, so as long as you take his words with a great deal of salt and maybe some pepper, you'll be able to get a general idea of the main events that made up the life of Croesus. Herodotus claims to have actually visited Lydia and its capital city of Sardis, which would not have been too far from his birthplace of Halicarnassus, one of the great Greek cities of antiquity in what was then Ionia. In fact, until the Persians conquered Ionia in 546 BC, Halicarnassus was ruled by Croesus, and would have at most been a few days' travel from the Lydian capital of Sardis. Today, Halicarnassus is essentially the modern Turkish city of Bodrum. By the time of Croesus's reign, the kingdom of Lydia was quite large and took up most of western Anatolia. This encompassed not only the land known as Lydia, but also the surrounding areas, most notably the Greek city-states of Ionia and what had once been the great kingdom of Phrygia. The Lydians themselves were natives of Anatolia who spoke an Indo-European language. Though they had their own native culture and religion, by around 600 BC, it had been heavily influenced by their Greek neighbors to the west. For many Greeks, Lydia was a land of stupendous wealth, and became so through two main sources. One was that, at least by Croesus's time, all of the major land trade routes between Asia and the Aegean Sea crossed through Lydia. The other was that the mountains and streams of Lydia were replete with natural sources of gold. It was everywhere, one couldn't take a few steps before stepping upon it. 
This of course may have been a bit of an exaggeration, though based on the number of gold vessels, jewelry, coins, and other artifacts that have been dug up by archaeologists throughout what was once ancient Lydia, it's not difficult to see how the Greeks, and many others, may have ended up believing that Croesus was the richest man in the world. Unfortunately for us, historical chronicles by the Lydians themselves have not been discovered, save for one by a certain Xanthos of Lydia, but he himself was actually a Greek, and was writing for a Greek audience. A more contemporary text may be a Babylonian chronicle, specifically what's known as the Nabonidus Chronicle. Dated to around 500 BC, it tells of the fall of Lydia to Cyrus, but doesn't specify the name of the Lydian king who fell, who is presumed to have been Croesus. Lydia's early history is a bit of a mystery. The vast majority of our information about it comes from our man Herodotus, who states that one of its earlier dynasties was founded by the legendary hero Heracles, also known as Hercules. This dynasty was said to have lasted some 500 years. Its last king, Candaulus, was overthrown by Gyeges, who founded the Mermnad dynasty. According to both Herodotus and Strabo, Gyeges went to war with the cities of Miletus, Smyrna, and Colophon, while keeping friendly relations with both Egypt and Assyria. He also fought against the Cimmerians, who were causing havoc throughout Anatolia, and seems to have met his end in battle against them. Less is known with regard to the two kings that succeeded him, Ardes and Sadiatis. The fourth king of the dynasty, Aliatis, fought against and defeated the Cimmerians, and then for five years waged war against the Median king, Sayasharis, though this latter conflict ended up being a stalemate, with both sides making peace in 585 BC. Sayasharis died that same year, but Aliatis lived on for a decade and a half, with the rest of his reign being rather peaceful and prosperous. Upon his death in 560 BC, his son, Croesus, became king of Lydia. Croesus was the last and most powerful king of Lydia. Along with this, he's remembered for his fabulous wealth. There used to be a common saying, rich as Croesus which I guess comes from a time when people were more versed in ancient history than they are now. I actually never heard it growing up, but my uncle, who's very well versed in the classics, did. Croesus's mother was from Caria, a region just south of Lydia. His father, though, was also married to an Ionian woman whose son, Pantaleon, was said to have been his rival for the throne. Croesus also had a sister, Aryanis, who was married to the king of Media, Astyages. Like many in the ancient world, it had been a political marriage. As mentioned earlier, the two sides had previously been at war for five years, but in 585 BC, they signed a treaty and made peace, and to sweeten the deal, they also forged a marriage alliance whereby Aliatis wed Ariennes to Astyages, the son of King Sayasharis of Media. When Sayasharis died that same year, Astyages, Croesus's new brother-in-law, became king of Media. According to Herodotus, Croesus had at least one wife and several children. We know of at least two of his sons. One of them, Atis, was accidentally killed on a hunting expedition 
and the other son, who Herodotus doesn't name, was deaf and mute for most of his life. In addition, Croesus also had several daughters. We also know of one grandson, Pythias, who was the son of Attis, and later on would offer his services to the Persian king, Xerxes. Before becoming king, Croesus was the governor of the region surrounding the city of Adramitium in Aeolia, which was roughly between the cities of ancient Troy and Pergamon. He also had fought a war against the Carians. That, though, wasn't enough. After becoming king in 560 BC, Herodotus tells us that Croesus subdued most of the kingdoms in western Anatolia, with the exception of Cilicia and Lycia, which I guess the more Latinized pronunciation is Lycia, or Lycia. I've actually heard professors use all three. Along with this already pre-existing alliance with the Medes, Croesus made others with the city of Ephesus, Sparta, and perhaps most prominently, the kingdoms of Egypt and Babylon. Basically, he was pretty much surrounded by allies. So if you're Croesus, you probably feel pretty secure in your position as king of Lydia. Not only this, but he was rich beyond belief. Croesus seems to have had it all. And here is where Herodotus decides to make an example of him. If you've ever read Herodotus's histories, then you've probably noticed that he does a lot of moralizing in many of his stories so that along with history, his audience would learn life lessons and good moral values. The story that I'm going to cover now is actually one of my favorites from Herodotus, and it features the Athenian lawgiver and sage, Solon. Now, in reality, this story most likely never happened because Solon is believed to have died in 560 BC, the same year that Croesus became king. If such a meeting occurred, it would have been when Croesus was still a prince, but that doesn't fit in with the details of the story. I personally think that they never met, and Herodotus just put in this story for pure entertainment value. Remember, in those days, even in a relatively literate society, such as in Athens, people didn't just go to the local bookshop and pick up a copy of the latest New York Times bestseller. Works such as Herodotus's histories were meant to be read aloud to the public in what usually was some type of forum. And so a special appearance from Solon, arguably the most respected Athenian individual of that time, if he had an encounter with Croesus, even if it didn't happen, this would have caused the crowd to have gone wild. So anyway, let's get to the story. It's a bit long and wordy, so I'll just read to you the relevant parts, which go like this. Of particular note was Solon the Athenian. He had made laws for the Athenians at their request, and then went abroad for ten years. He did have the excuse of wanting to do some sightseeing, but he really did it so that he could not be forced to repeal any of the laws he had made. The Athenians could not do such a thing on their own, because they had taken a solemn oath to abide for a period of ten years by whatever laws Solon would make. For this reason, as well as for sightseeing, Solon went abroad and visited the court of Amasis in Egypt, and also the court of Croesus at Sardis. When he arrived there, he was entertained as a guest by Croesus in the palace. Then, on the third or fourth day, Croesus gave orders to his servants to give Solon a tour through the treasuries and to point out all his great riches. When Solon had viewed and inspected everything long enough, 
Croesus said to him, My Athenian guest, word of your wisdom and travels has reached us even here. We hear you have wandered through much of the world in search for knowledge, so I really can't resist asking you now whether you have yet seen anyone who surpasses all others in happiness and prosperity. He asked this in the hope that he would be declared the happiest and most prosperous of all, but Solon had no intention of flattering him. He spoke the plain truth. Sire, that would be Tellus the Athenian. Croesus was amazed and questioned him sharply. Why do you choose Tellus? Solon replied. For one thing, he lived in a famous city and had good and noble children, and he saw all his children and grandchildren surviving him. Besides, he was well off, at least by our standards of living, and he ended his life in the greatest glory, for he came to the aid of the Athenians in a battle against their neighbors in Eleusisa and forced them to flee before he died most nobly on the battlefield. The Athenians buried him at public expense in the very place he fell and gave him great honors. Herodotus then tells us that Solon went on to mention other men who were better off than Croesus. The Lydian king, however, was pretty annoyed, which he made no attempt to hide from Solon. My Athenian guest, he said, are you disparaging my own happiness as though it were nothing? Do you think me worth less than even a common man? Solon replied, Croesus, you asked me about human concerns, and I know that the gods are jealous of human prosperity and disruptive of our peace. Over a long period of time, a man will see and experience many things he would rather not. You seem to be very wealthy, and you rule over many people. But I cannot yet tell you the answer you asked for until I learn how you have ended your life. You see, the man who is very wealthy is no more happy and prosperous than the man who has only enough to live from day to day, unless good fortune stays with him and he retains his fair and noble possessions right up until he departs this life happily. The man who goes through life having the most blessings and then ends his life favorably he is the man, sire, who rightly wins this title from me. We must look to the end of every matter to see how it will turn out. God shows many people a hint of happiness and prosperity, only to destroy them later. Solon did not please Croesus at all by telling him this, and Croesus dismissed him, thinking him worthless and extremely ignorant for overlooking the good things right before his eyes and telling him instead to look at the end of every matter. We'll come back to this story in a few moments. When Cyrus II of Persia overthrew his grandfather, the Median king Astyages in 550 BC, Croesus saw it as an opportunity to annex what was once formerly Median territory into his own kingdom. After all, he probably felt that he was entitled to it since his sister, Ariennes, was married to Astyages. And now that the Median king had been overthrown, unjustly, according to Croesus, he had the opportunity to both expand his kingdom and perhaps avenge his brother-in-law. And so, after reaching out to the Oracle of Delphi, whose diviners told him that he'd, and I quote, destroy a great empire, Croesus crossed the Halys River 
and into the western frontier provinces of Cyrus's newly established Persian Empire. Now I covered a lot of this campaign in a video on Cyrus the Great, so I'm not going to go into the details here, but long story short, Croesus fought two battles against the Persians, one at a fortress called Pateria, and the other on the plains just outside of Sardis. On both occasions, victory eluded Croesus. Finally, after a short siege of Sardis itself, in 546 BC, Cyrus was able to breach the walls, capture the city, and bring Lydia into the Persian Empire. It's after these events that Herodotus' story of Solon and Croesus continues. Again, I'm sure that Herodotus exaggerated or at least embellished certain details, but I do believe it's a pretty entertaining story, and so I'll just complete it. Here's what Herodotus wrote about the end of Croesus's reign. When the Persians took Sardis and captured Croesus, he had ruled 14 years and had been under siege 14 days. And as the oracle predicted, he put an end to a great empire, his own. The Persians seized him and led him to Cyrus and to a huge pyre that the king had had them build. And they mounted Croesus bound in shackles on top of it, and with him, fourteen Lydian boys. Cyrus did this either to consecrate them as a sacrifice of victory offerings to some god, or to fulfill a vow, or perhaps, having found out that Croesus was God-fearing, he wanted to see if some divinity would save him from being burned alive. As Croesus stood there on the pyre, despite the horror of his predicament, he thought of Solon and how divinely inspired he had been when he stated his maxim that no living human can be called truly happy and prosperous. Until then, he had remained quiet. But when this occurred to him, he sighed deeply and groaned and repeated aloud, Solon, three times. Cyrus heard this and ordered his interpreters to ask Croesus who was this man he called by name. Croesus kept silent at first, but when they pressed him to answer, he said, A man to whom I would pay a fortune if only he could talk to all tyrants. Since his words were obscure to them, they questioned him again, asking what he meant, and they continued to pester him until he told them what had happened when Solon the Athenian had visited him. Indeed, he related the whole story from beginning to end, even repeating Solon's very words of how after the Athenian had seen all of the king's prosperity, he had still made light of it and refused to call Croesus a fortunate man. And now, everything had turned out just as Solon had said, and indeed it was clear that his words applied no more to Croesus himself than to the whole human race, and especially to all those who consider themselves happy and prosperous. While Croesus related all this, the pyre had been lit, and its edges were now burning. Cyrus, after learning through the interpreters what Croesus had said, reflected that he too was human, and changed his mind about committing a living man to the fire, a fellow human being who had been blessed with happiness no less than he. Moreover, he began to fear retribution and to contemplate the fact that nothing is really secure and certain for human beings. So he gave orders that the fire should be extinguished at once, and that Croesus and the Lydian youths with him on the pyre be brought down. The Persians immediately tried to carry out his orders, but they were unable to get the fire under control. Then, say the Lydians, 
As Croesus watched all the men attempting, but failing to put out the mounting flames, he realized that Cyrus had changed his mind, beseeching him that if any of his gifts had ever pleased the god, to come now to his rescue and save him from the danger at hand. And as he called on the god and began to weep, clouds suddenly converged out of the clear, calm sky, and a storm burst out, and rain poured down in floods, extinguishing the fire. Cyrus understood from this that Croesus must be a good man and dear to the gods. He had him brought down from the pyre and asked him, Croesus, who on earth persuaded you to wage war against me rather than to become my friend? Croesus replied, Sire, what I did was a blessing for you, but a curse for me. The one to blame is the god of the Hellenes. It is he who encouraged me to go to war. Otherwise, no one could be so foolish as to prefer war to peace. In peace, sons bury their fathers. In war, fathers bury sons. Surely this all happened by divine will. So, in the end, according to Herodotus, Croesus's life was spared, and we're told that he even became a trusted advisor of both Cyrus and later on his son and successor, Cambyses II. After Cyrus's conquest, Lydia became one of the Achaemenid Persian Empire's most important satraps, or provinces, until the arrival of Alexander the Great in 334 BC. Lydian culture in the 7th and 6th centuries BC was fundamentally Anatolian, but with a strong Eastern Greek or Ionian influence upon it. For example, like many other peoples of Anatolia, such as the Phrygians, the Lydians believed in the great goddess known as Kuvava, or Kibble. However, at least according to Herodotus, Xenophon, and other ancient writers familiar with the Lydians, their religion was infused with many Greek elements, and at least the kings or other wealthy members of society were very fond of visiting or sending lavish gifts to the many Greek sanctuaries throughout the world, most notably those at Delphi and Thebes. The Lydians are also the first to be credited with issuing coins, with some claiming that it was Croesus himself who started this, though there's evidence suggesting that it may have actually been his father, Aliates. The earliest Lydian coins were made out of a gold-silver alloy called electrum. Later coins were made out of pure gold or silver. Like many of the peoples of ancient Anatolia, the Lydians had their own language, an Indo-European one that may have been a distant descendant of Luvian, which was the common tongue for the region during the latter half of the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. Very few examples of it actually survive, other than some inscriptions on coins, funerary epitaphs, some random graffiti, and a few lines on various pottery shards that have been discovered. Lydia remained a satrapy of the Persian Empire until 334 BC, when Alexander of Macedon, also known as Alexander the Great, captured the city of Sardis. Though incorporated into the empires of others, including the Seleucid and later the Roman Empire, the lands that had once been the kingdom of Lydia for the most part enjoyed periods of relative peace and stability. They remained so for centuries, until the later years of Roman, Byzantine rule, when the region was under assault by various invaders, most notably the Crusaders, and later, the Turks. By then, though, the Lydian identity had pretty much disappeared. But these are stories for another time, well into the future.
So I hope that you enjoyed this short program on Lydia and its most famous king, Croesus. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. I'd also really like to thank Grand Keg 69, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all of the content coming up as we finish up 2020 and head into 2021. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again, and stay safe.